Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Um, we're coming nearly to the end of a series that we've been in uh, for a number of weeks, kind of dating back before Advent, and then we picked it up after the beginning of the year or after Christmas tide, um, that we're calling Finding Jesus in Genesis. And what we're doing in this series is we're kind of flexing our interpretive muscles uh, and learning how to read the scriptures with Christ as the interpretive center. Um, the Bible, you can get the Bible to say almost anything you want it to say. Um, and so it's an it's a ancient, uh, complex, nuanced book, and we need to interpret it. We need to understand it. And we need an anchor uh, by which we can do that. And uh, what we, what we're, so we're working off of a couple of convictions. Number one uh, is the conviction that the scriptures uh, do not uh, point us to their own authority, uh, but they point us to the authority of Christ. Uh, that, the, that the written words of God point us to the living word of God, who is Christ. Uh, that's the first conviction. The second conviction, it, conviction is uh, that, in fact, the scriptures say that Jesus is the exact representation of God's being, uh, that God is like Jesus. And so we're looking kind of at the Old Testament through the interpretive lens of Christ and finding Jesus in all sorts of, of new and fresh and beautiful ways. And so we have found Jesus in the creation story, the Adam and Eve story, the story of Noah, uh, the not very well-known story of Melchizedek, uh, the very well-known story of Abraham and Isaac. And so finally today we come to Jacob. And what we're going to do is we're going to do Jacob today. We'll do one more uh, Finding Jesus in Genesis next week. And then we're going to launch into Finding Jesus in Exodus. Uh, we're just going to keep going. <laughs> so uh, it sounds fun, right? Uh, so here, so let me orient you a little bit to Jacob's life. Uh, so we're going to be kind of a few minutes in before we read any passages of Scripture, uh, but I promise we'll get there. Uh, Jacob is uh, the patriarch of the Old Testament that is renamed as Israel. So Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Uh, so it would be difficult to overstate the importance of this Old Testament figure. In fact, in the Old Testament writings, uh, when writers wanted to identify Yahweh, uh, they would often say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they do that because it's in those three generations that kind of lead us directly into the nation and the story of Israel, which is really central to the Old Testament and essential to understanding the New Testament. And so trying to orient us oftentimes to the one true God, Yahweh, the writers of the Old Testament would say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they do that because this, of this essential kind of nature of leading us into the nation of Israel. Uh, Abraham was given a promise that he would be the father of a great nation. Isaac was the seed of that promise, and his life then spared on Mount Moriah, as we talked about last week. And then Isaac has uh, a son, Jacob, who is renamed Israel. And Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, so to kind of get a family tree, Abraham is Jacob's grandfather. Isaac is Jacob's father. And it is these three that are named 
these three generations that are named when trying to identify the one true God, Yahweh. They are key patriarchs, and they are heroes of the faith. However, <laughs> there's always like a however, right? Or there's always a but, right? Uh, I had an old theology uh, preacher that used to say there's always a big but. <laughs> so here's the big but, right? Uh, the big but is whatever moral credibility that Jacob earned later in his life, it was certainly not true in the beginning of his life. Um, it was in the beginning of his life, Jacob was not a person that you would want to emulate. Jacob uh, was the second born of fraternal twins. In fact, his name, Jacob, uh, means heel grabber. Uh, because he came out of the womb grasping at the heel of Esau, which was his firstborn twin brother. And in fact, this heel grabbing, uh, this kind of like jockeying for position, was really just a foreshadowing of the trouble that was to come between these two brothers. As they grow up, Jacob is painted as sort of a peaceful homebody, while his brother Esau, whose name means Harry, uh, as in H. A-I-R-Y, not H-A-R-R-Y. I mean, that's like low-level pastor joke, right? So like, I'm a dad and a pastor, so lower your expectations, okay? Um, so Esau, whose name means Harry, is painted as a hunter, uh, kind of a, a, a burlesque kind of guy, a, a, but a strong guy, but someone who's not very smart. So you have a homebody, Jacob, uh, and then you have tough guy Esau, who's Harry, but not very smart. And then so throughout his early life, Jacob was a sly guy. He was the kind of guy who would uh, look to exploit relationships. He was the kind of guy who wanted to get close enough to you just to see how he could take advantage of the relationship that he had with you, how he could leverage things in his favor uh, so the outcomes would be like advantageous to him. And that how that you and your and his relationship with you could be used for his own personal gain. And so if that's his posture toward life, certainly his brother Esau became victim of that more than once. Uh, here's just an example. One day Esau uh, came home after hunting. He was famished. And he asked for some of the stew that Jacob was, uh, was preparing. And so instead of offering food to his famished brother like uh, a decent person would do, uh, Jacob decided to take advantage of the situation and, and uh, said that he would offer his brother uh, some stew in exchange for his birthright. Um, and if this sounds ridiculous, it's, it is, right? Uh, and just for, clarity, uh, just for clarity, the birthright was all the rights and privileges that belonged to the firstborn son. So when I say rights and privileges, I have, it has everything to do with money, power, position, privilege, etc., etc., right? So shockingly, uh, Jacob says that he will give Esau some stew, some soup, some lunch, in exchange uh, for his birthright. Uh, so I'll give you some stew if you give me money, power, privilege, position that rightly belongs to you as the firstborn, you have to wonder if he was even serious, right? Was this like just like some, some kind of like brotherly joke? Uh, but in one of the more bewildering passages in all of the scriptures, Esau agrees, right? Esau agrees. Turns out maybe he isn't very smart. Um, but nobody tells their aging father, Isaac. So they make this deal about who the birthright actually belongs to. Uh, but they don't tell the father, Isaac. 
Uh, let's call this the stew switcheroo, okay? Let's call this the stew switcheroo. All right, so you have the stew switcheroo. Now, fast forward a few years. Isaac is now very old. He cannot see, and he wants to give Esau uh, the firstborn, right? He wants to give Esau his own firstborn, the birthright blessing. But what we know as the readers is that the birthright blessing actually belongs to Jacob based on the stew switcheroo. Uh, but Isaac doesn't know this. So rather than kind of everyone come clean and just be honest about the whole thing, right? And just say, actually, there was this stew switcheroo, but okay, Esau as the firstborn, go ahead. And like, I wasn't really serious, but then Esau did it. Never mind. Let's just come clean with the whole thing rather than do that. <laughs> Oh man, this is better and better, right? Jacob and his mother now, and his mother, Rebecca, see what is about to happen. See that Esau is about to get the birthright blessing. And they come up with a cunning plan to make sure that the birthright goes to Jacob. And their plan is to have Jacob dress up in animal fur. Remember, Esau means hairy, so he's a hairy dude. So Jacob dresses up in animal fur and goes into his father, who's very old and cannot see very well, uses his best Esau voice, and receives uh, the blessing from his father. Uh, and so their plan works. He dresses up in all animal furs, uses his best Esau voice, and actually received the blessing that he had stolen already from Esau through the mix-up with the stew. So the crazy plan works. Isaac finds out, the father, and he, of course, he's furious. Esau is, comes home and finds out what has happened. Of course, he's furious, and he wants to kill Jacob and then forces Jacob to run for his life. <sighs> um, P. Inns, uh, author of a book called Genesis for Normal People, phenomenal book, I suggest it to you, says this, quote, sounds like a job for a family systems therapist with a clear calendar. And that's precisely where we're at, right? Like you thought the Bible was boring and yet here we are, right? It's got all sorts of stuff. So uh, even though, so, so Jacob then is now on the run and even though his father and his grandfather had profound experiences with God, Jacob had not yet experienced God. To this point in his life, he was just a sly guy who took advantage of people, including his own brother. And that is where we get to our story. It's found in Genesis chapter 28. We're going to be in lots of passages of scripture today as we kind of take a view of his life. But we're going to start in Genesis chapter 28. I want to begin with verse 10. Uh, Genesis 28, beginning with verse 10. This is Jacob having a dream at Bethel. Meanwhile, Jacob left Beersheba and traveled toward Haran. At sundown, he arrived at a good place to set up camp and stopped there for the night. Jacob found a stone to rest his head up against and lay down to sleep. And as he slept, he dreamed of a stairway that reached from the earth up to heaven, and he saw the angels of God going up and down the stairway. At the top of the stairway stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abraham, and the God of your father Isaac. The ground you are lying on belongs to you. I am giving it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will spread out in all directions to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. This is God reaffirming the promise he had given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Now what's more, I am with you and I will protect you wherever you go. One day I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything that I have promised to you. 
And then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I wasn't even aware of it. This is Jacob having his first genuine experience of the presence of God. But he was also afraid and said, what an awesome place this is. It is none other than the house of God and the very gateway to heaven. So the next morning, Jacob got up very early. He took the stone that he had rested his head against. He set it upright as a memorial pillar. Then he poured olive oil over it, and he named that place Bethel, or Bethel, which means house of God. Although it had been previously called Luz or Luz. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now let's do a quick recap of what happens in this story. Jacob, who had not encountered God in a significant way up to this point in his life, encounters God in a dream. And in this dream, there is a ladder, which is also most likely a ramp. Okay, it's most likely a ramp. And the ladder reaches up to heaven with angels that are ascending and descending. This is the core of the dream. Uh, now, of course, there is also the part in which God, uh, he sees the Lord speak to him, where God reaffirms the promise that he had given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 4, that from his line will be a great nation that will be a blessing to all the earth. But the core of the dream is this ramp where there's angels ascending and descending. In other words, making their way from heaven to earth. And so Jacob wakes up uh, from the dream, but it has a profound impact on him. And so he wakes up, he turns the stone over that he was laying on, turns it into a pillar, anoints it with oil, and calls the place Bethel, which means the house of God, which is as though Jacob were essentially saying, God is in this place. Yes, amen, what a heartwarming story, a stairway to heaven. And all of us are reminded of the classic rock song, right? And we just think, oh, this is a beautiful thing. Where in the world can we find Jesus? Or what in the world does it have to do with Jesus? Turn over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. I think this is not going to be on the screen. I didn't give it to our audiovisual team. Uh, So you can just listen. John chapter 1, beginning with verse 43. Beginning with verse 43. Let me find it here. All right, Uh, so this is the encounter between Philip and Nathanael. Philip has come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Nathanael isn't quite so sure. Here's uh, the encounter between these two friends. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, Come, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew, and Peter's hometown. Philip then went to Nathanael and told him, We have found the very person that Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, and he's the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathanael. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's a solid question, right? So come and see for yourself, Philip replied. As they approached, Jesus said, Now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. How do you know this about me? Nathanael asked. Jesus replied, well, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus asked him, do you believe this just because I told you I had seen you under the fig tree? I tell you, you will see greater things than this. And then he said, I tell you the truth. You will all see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the son of man. 
the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. <laughs> now, Philip comes to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He tells his friend Nathaniel, and Nathaniel asks for clarification. Upon learning that Jesus is from Nazareth, he's skeptical that the Messiah could come from such a podunk place like that. Philip says, let's go and see. The two travel up. They meet Jesus. Upon seeing Nathanael, Jesus makes a rather strange comment, and he says, now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. This is the first encounter between Jesus and Nathanael, and Jesus is pronouncing upon him a true Israeli identity. This is a true Israelite, a man of complete integrity. And I found you under the fig tree before Philip ever saw you. And of course, the, the big question surrounding this text is what in the world is Nathaniel doing under the fig tree? Right? Like what is going on? And the answer is we don't know. And the answer is we'll never know. We can only speculate. Uh, we, we simply don't know what's happening. But we can, scholars for many years have tried to fill in the blanks. Many believe that Nathaniel was praying under the fig tree. And that Jesus received, or that is, Jesus heard these prayers. And that is how, that he, how he knew that Nathanael was under the fig tree. But whatever it is, whatever that Nathanael sort of is caught in the act of under the fig tree, it leads Nathanael to a confession that, in fact, Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, now, that has all sorts of interesting things about it, but the one I want to point out this morning is what you may have found later on in the passage, to which we had an ooh and an awe ah afterward, and that is, Jesus says, you will see even greater things than this. I tell you the truth, you will all see heaven open up, and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. One of the things that we've been doing in this series is we've tried to be faithful not to make anything up on our own, but rather we've been drawing from the New Testament writers themselves and how they begin to see and to understand how Christ is present in the Old Testament stories. And so here we have Jesus himself recognizing, hey, the Son of Man is the stairway that connects heaven and earth. And so where do we find Jesus in the story of Jacob's ladder? We find Jesus as the ladder upon which angels ascend and descend. Now there's an immediate follow-up question, right? What are angels? Angels, if you, you could say it this way, are agents of grace. Angels are agents of grace. And they sometimes descend to bring us help. Now I don't have uh, any real concept. I don't have a thought out view of how this works. Um, you know, I don't, uh, I'm not like, hey, Frank Peretti from the 90s, go read that. That's all theologically awesome. I don't want to, I'm not prepared to say that, but I am prepared to say upon the witness of the Holy Spirit and the evidence of the scriptures, that agents of grace in moments of need can come down and help us. Now, that might be simply they might lift our spirits. We might have a sense of God's surrounding love around us. It may be something that we physically and tangibly see. I only have one story to tell here. When I was in youth group, my mom knows what's coming, right? Uh, when I was in youth group, um, we were on a ski trip. And the roads, we were going up to Monarch 
So we were, at Monarch, we were going at Monarch Pass, and the roads were terrible. And so we had two, a caravan of two uh, vans, church vans, um, and the front one uh, got out of control on the slick roads and fell on its side, on the side of the road. And um, I was not in that van. I was in the van that approached this van, but my brothers were. And the brothers tell a story that uh, immediately upon falling, and, and they're in this fallen vehicle now, they are trying to get out the back door, the emergency kind of exit in the back. The, the door is jammed. It won't open. They're, smarting, they're, they're starting to smell gasoline. They're kind of really wondering. This, this, this situation is escalating very quickly. About that time, we, the second van pulled up and saw uh, a man. We have no idea where he came from. But a man came, opened the back door, and outspilled all these teenagers safely onto the road. And we were, got it from there. And as we were all telling the story afterwards, we, because we got safely uh, to our resort, enjoyed a great ski trip the rest of the time. But as we were sort of recounting, we said, Does any, did anyone know or recognize uh, this person that opened the back door? And all of us sort of like saw him. We have no idea where he came from. We have no idea where he went. In other words, he did not stay to help us find our way to the resort or anything else. This is way, way before cell phones or anything like that. And so we found our way and we sort of like sort of collectively decided this was an agent of grace that came down to assist us in a time of need. This is my only experience of this. I'm not saying it's common. I'm not saying that something's wrong with you if you've not had an experience like this. I'm simply saying that I think that, that there are moments in life when agents of grace come and help lift us up. Amen. There are agents of grace that come down. And then in the same way, there are agents of grace that help us ascend to a more deeply and more beautiful spiritual life. So there are angels that descend in order to help us up, and then they help us, then when they're then they're here and they help us ascend. And you could use this as real tangible language, you could use this as metaphor, and it works. Are you with me? Right? So let's kind of not get caught up in the particularities of the language, but understand the message that there are agents of grace that come and help us. So just as they come, descend to help us, they help us ascend into a deeply spiritual life connected to the current of love. Amen. Jesus is the ladder upon which agents of grace ascend and descend. Jesus is the very one who connects heaven and earth. Amen. Jesus is also the one who unites heaven and earth. Jesus is the one who unites heaven and earth, the one who reconciles God's realm and humanity's realm. Or to use more common language, Jesus is the one who reconciles heaven and earth. For in Christ, in the person of Christ, who is fully God and fully human, heaven and earth come together. Just as the tabernacle in the Old Testament was the very place where the people went to experience the presence of God, it was a place on earth that held the presence of God. God, so Jesus now is the new tabernacle where all the fullness of God dwells in a man who was born bodily. Are you with me? 
Fully God, fully man, and he in, so he, in the person of Jesus, heaven and earth meet. And as the unique high priest, right? Remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago. As the unique high priest then, Jesus is uniquely qualified to fulfill the role of high priest on the cross and reconcile heaven and earth together. Amen. We got some theology here. So in some very real way, now if we understand who the person of Christ is and the work of Christ as our great high priest on the cross, that where on the cross both heaven and earth are reconciled so that we can say in great confidence, you have been reconciled to God. Then the Apostle Paul will say, so be reconciled to God, right? It's this thing that is true, the work has been done, and yet it invites us or calls a response in us. You have been reconciled to God, so now be reconciled to God. And may appropriate the work of the cross on your behalf in your life through faith and, and, for, and confession. So in this way, if we understand the cross in this way, as the very thing that unites or reconciles heaven and earth, we could say this. Jacob's ladder is the cross of Christ. The very thing that unites and reconciles heaven and earth together. Amen. I've been doing a little thing where I complete a sermon and then I give some DVD special features. Right? That's kind of been a little shtick of this series. And I thought, let's just continue. Why do that? Why not stop? So here's, here's the alternate ending or the additional features or the deleted scenes or however you want to put it or sermon number two. Okay, Sermon number two. Fast forward several years. Jacob and Esau are estranged from one another. I wonder why. <laughs> the whole stew switcheroo doesn't go over very well, right? So they're estranged from one another, but they have become the patriarchs of neighboring nations, right? So they're sort of neighbors, but they are estranged from one another. So there's an inevitable reunion that is about to happen in Genesis chapter 32. But the question is, is, is it going to be a reunion or is it going to be a battle? Esau shows up with 400 soldiers, which does not bode well for a reunion, right? Uh, but here's what happens. The night before their meeting, Jacob is caught up in a wrestling match with a man. Now, we know nothing about the person uh, with whom he wrestles. But what we do know is that Jacob is able to hold his own all night. Uh, then the man that he's wrestling with harms Jacob's hip. But even after being harmed, Jacob does an interesting thing. Seeing that this man has been able to injure him, but not overcome him. Uh, in other words, it appears that Jacob, after all this wrestling and then is injured, he appears that he's coming to terms with this. While this man cannot overcome me, he does have some sense of authority over me because he's injured me. So after being injured, Jacob refuses to let go until he receives a blessing from this person who has authority over him, right? <laughs> so it's like, ouch, bless me, <laughs> is essentially how it goes down. This is what happens. So the man harms Jacob's hip. Jacob refuses to let go until the man blesses him. And as part of this encounter, Jacob's name is changed. As we started this, the, the uh, sermon this morning, his name is changed to Israel. 
And the name Israel literally means struggles with God or wrestles with God. Where do we find Jesus? The pre-incarnate Jesus is the man with whom Jacob wrestles. And what happens is, is this Jesus, this man with whom Jacob wrestles, dislocates some things in Jacob's life and then gives him a new identity. The dislocate, you could say it this way, the dislocation brings transformation. The dislocation brings transformation. Church, isn't it true that seasons and moments of our life when we feel the most dislocated are the moments that bring the greatest transformation? If you look at your life, and I encourage you to do this, try this out. This may not be universally true, but it's certainly generally true. If you map out your life and you kind of point to moments in your life where you experienced great transformation, just prior to that, there is usually a season of incredible dislocation. Struggle, challenge, heartache, disappointment. Whatever it is, However it comes, it's moments that bring us to the greatest need that often lead to the greatest transformation in our life. Now, this isn't, may not always be true. I'm hesitant to say this is absolutely always true, but I'm confident to say this is certainly normally true. And so Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus, is the man with whom Jacob wrestles. And Jesus gets into his life and he dislocates some stuff. Um, usually the gospel and relationship with Jesus is framed as uh, sort of a band-aid over our lives. Like sort of everything just gets better. Just put your faith in Jesus and like everything gets better. Um, yes and no. <laughs> uh, usually a real commitment to the way of Jesus a commitment to walking and carrying our cross and walking faithfully in the ways of Jesus usually has all sorts of dislocation attached to it. It has all sorts of disorienting things. Some things in your life are going to get messed up. Like Jesus and the Holy Spirit are going to go in and they're going to mess some things up so that they can bring transformation. Are you with me? That's usually what happens. It isn't just that we place our faith in Jesus and then everything magically gets better. It's that we place our faith in Jesus and then it reorients our whole self, our whole worldview, our whole perspective. Some things are certainly dislocated and that dislocation leads to transformation. So Jacob then names that place Peniel. Jacob just like loves to name places, right? He's just like, this experience, I'm going to name this place. And so he names that place where he wrestles. He names it Peniel, which means the face of God. That here I have seen the face of God. Well, what happens then to this family reunion? Genesis chapter 32 Genesis chapter 32, beginning with verse 30, reading into the next chapter. Jacob named the place Peniel, which means the face of God, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life was spared. 
The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel, and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. And even today, the people of Israel don't eat the tendon near the hip socket because of what happened that night when the man strained the tendon of Jacob's hip. <laughs> Some of you are like, what does that mean? I don't know. Um, so then, like, so then into, the, into the next chapter. Then Jacob looked up and saw that Esau, Esau coming with 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and his two servant wives. He put the servant wives and their children at the front, Leah and her children next, Rachel and Joseph last. Then Jacob went on ahead. As he approached his brother, this is the brother he had taken advantage of. They're estranged. As he approached his brother, he bowed down to the ground seven times before him. To this one for whom he had taken advantage and he had exploited their relationship, he now on his own volition, after having dislocation that leaded to transformation, he approaches his estranged brother and bows down before him willingly. And then what does Esau do? Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they both wept. <sighs> I have chills right now because have you ever been estranged from somebody? I sure have. And it was ugly, and it was hard. And just the very thought, the very picture of this is moving to my heart. Here's what, I, here's what I want to point out. Upon seeing his brother, whom he had taken advantage of twice, at least twice, and they are estranged, Jacob approaches his brother, not looking to see how he could leverage the situation, not to see how he could work things to his own advantage, not looking to exploit somebody who he had so easily exploited all before, who he has intellectual prowess over, right? He approaches this person and he, on his own volition, begins to bow down seven times as a sign of saying, I am, I am placing myself before you. I am giving you honor and authority over me. This is the sense of bowing down. You could almost say it this way, that when he looks at his brother, he sees the face of God. It isn't Esau that sees the face of God in Jacob. It's Jacob that sees the face of God in Esau. The one whom he had so easily exploited before in the past. And so I want you to see the connection between this, this place, Peniel, the very face of God, and the transformation that Jacob experienced there. And then upon meeting his estranged brother, begins to say, in you I now see the face of God. Here's the point. In the people that he used to devalue by exploiting them, he now sees their, his shared humanity and the very face of God. You might say it this way, the image of God. He sees the image of God in his brother Esau, perhaps for the very first time. Where he once saw people as objects to be exploited, he now sees the face of God and the image of God in others. That is transformation. 
Amen? I've gone so far over my time. <laughs> Jesus is Jacob's ladder that reconciles heaven and earth. Jesus is the very one with whom Jacob wrestles, gives him new identity, and transforms him. That's where we can find Jesus in these stories of Genesis. Amen? Gracious God, thank you um, for your great love for us. I pray that if there are things in our life that need to be dislocated this morning, that your Holy Spirit would move in and begin to dislo dislocate those things so that we might be transformed. And so God, as we gather around the Lord's table, I just pray that you would uh, meet us in this place. May your presence be very real. Um, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.